Welcome to At The Flicks. Today we are very pleased to be talking to one of the top BBC reporters in the Southwest, Mr Steve Nibbs. Hello Steve, how are you doing? I'm really well, thanks Jeff. How are you? Oh, very well, thank you. Sun shining, all's right in the world. Absolutely. Steve, I've got to say before we go into the show, thank you very much for all your coverage of the COVID pandemic from Gloucester Royal. I know the staff there have asked me to pass on to you their thanks as well for some excellent coverage. That's really kind. I mean, it's been an extraordinary year to be a journalist. One thing I concentrate on as a, as a local reporter for Gloucestershire is trying to reflect what happens in the, you know, the epicentre of the pandemic, of course, is the is the hospital. And it was an honour to go in and, and record with them, really, to see at first hand how they were doing. And it was it was one of the reasons we wanted to focus on the, the teams there, because there was a lot of national coverage of the critical care units in London, in Manchester, the big cities. But I was really keen that we showed what was happening on our doorstep. It was a real privilege and we recorded with them back in November, you know, a couple of months before the the second wave really hit them and you know you could see it building and it was a, a privilege to see them and hats off to everything that they've done. Absolutely. On a lighter note, I've been checking up on you on the internet. I promise not stalking Steve. And <laughs> <Go on. laughs> I've I've been looking at some music videos about swimming with Alice. Yes. What can you tell me about that, Steve? Okay, well, I've, I've played music all of my life and I was in uh, various bands from just leaving university and, you know, you're in a couple of bands where you think you're going to be the next big thing and then I put a band together for my wedding. That band stayed together for about 14 years. We split up in the end because we were fed up with playing other people's weddings. That was all we were doing. <laughs> um, but that was just like a covers party band. And then Claire Carter, who I used to work with, she was a presenter at Radio Gloucestershire where I'm based. And we went to cut a very long story short, we went to a friend's leaving party where I was playing some music and Claire started singing and she had the most incredible voice. Neither of us were doing anything musically. So we got together and we started playing some tunes and Claire wrote a bit of music. I wrote a bit of music and um, we recorded them in my cameraman's shed in Frampton on Seven. So Mark is my cameraman. He's a, it's a fantastic crew, but he's built this shed in his garden, which is a bar. And we've had some great parties in there. And we thought we'd do some sessions uh, for Swimming with Alice and recorded them back in 2019. And it wasn't until the pandemic that I had a chance to edit them all together. So you can see our original tracks on YouTube. And we're going to write some more, you know, when we get time. The trouble is I live in Gloucestershire. Claire now is the breakfast presenter of Radio Somerset. So we don't see a lot of each other. That's where it came from. And we're hoping one of our promises is when things get back to normal, we'll, we'll get on the road and we'll do some gigs where people can come and see us if we're brave enough. No, I think that would be great. Great. I mean, I'd recommend to people to check out the uh, little videos that are there on YouTube. Oh, that's very kind. This is going well. Yes. <laughs> and I also understand you're into magic. Wow, yeah. You're doing the whole list of my hobbies. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> yes. So, well, I'm a child of the 70s, so I was brought up on David Nixon and Paul Daniels and was really into magic as a kid. Went to Vegas for my honeymoon for a few days and... Uh, we went in a few magic shops and I started to buy a bit of magic again and get back into it. Yeah, it's it's been a real big hobby of mine. Until my daughter was born, I, sp- I spent an inordinate amount of my disposable income on buying magic tricks that I'd never perform. In fact, I'm looking at shelves of stuff I should start selling, really. A classic <laughs> magic hobbyist. But it's always something I've been really passionate about because I see it as a real, real art form. And uh, about 10 years ago with a couple of friends, we organized a magic show at the Everyman in Cheltenham called An Evening of Deception. And 10 years on, Obviously not um, not this year we haven't, but 10 years on, we've been doing sellout shows in the studio there every year and um, we're hoping that we can come back next year to watch this space. But it's just a chance for people to come in long and see really great close-up magic from professionals. It's not just for, I host it, but I, I do a couple of tricks, but we get real professional magicians in who do it for a living and we, we've sold out and it's been um, absolutely brilliant to get musicians uh, magicians in from all over the country. We had a guy from Holland last year, Fritz Alchemade, who was amazing and just a chance for people to see close-up magic up close and personal personal, and see that it's not cheesy. It's not pulling rabbits out of hats and sawing ladies in half. Those days have gone. Yeah, I can recommend that as well. How much more of my stuff can I plug? This is great. I think <laughs> I think you might have run out of my hobbies now, Jeff, no, unless you've got another surprise. Well, the, the one thing that always impresses me with magic is Obviously, one of the things I miss at the moment is not going to London is Covent Garden. And you, you st- see the street magicians, you know, and, and how that's all done is just incredible. 
Yeah. One of the first magicians we had at the show was a good friend of mine, Steve Faulkner, and he did Covent Garden for many years. He did straight jacket escapes. He did the cups and balls and he'd really learned his craft on the streets there. And I, you know, most of the magicians I've met that have worked in Covent Garden and done street magic, they are the better ones because they, they know what works and they know how to work a crowd. But yeah, it's, um, it's a great tradition. Most people's only experience of magic is going to a wedding or you, you'd be at a party and somebody might be walking around doing walk around magic, but to go actually go and see a show there aren't many shows outside of london in a theater we only do our stuff in the studio at the everyman but it's a really beautiful space for that and it's it's really intimate everybody i know that's gone has just had a really real real ball and um yeah it's always good because we i get nervous that because we, we need to sell out really because you don't want to have any empty seats in a small venue and you always get really nervous but we've been really lucky touch wood that we've sold out up to now and yeah so it's a much sought after ticket can't say too much but i think there may be some performances in 2022 so watch this space excellent well we'll exclusive for you yeah Yeah. we'll we'll do our best to promote that for you as well oh thanks very much so we spoke magic there let's talk mystery so steve your top five films in reverse order what would be in a slow reveal number five Okay, this is so. Everybody must say this to you how difficult it is. I've changed it over and over again. So, um, can I just say at the outset that I'm a massive Star Wars fan, as I think you may have heard from Joe Gowan at Radio Gloucestershire. So, I've deliberately left Star Wars out of my top five because I think that's a whole different podcast. (laughs) Because it would be really obvious for me to put A New Hope and Empire at the top of the five. So, I've deliberately taken star wars out is that allowed under the rules is that no, okay? yeah yeah I, I would say and obviously i can't reveal names but a, a friend of yours said had a bet that all five films would be star wars related <laughs> yeah this yeah yeah this was joe durrance wasn't it at radio Gloucester it, Show, I think it may well have been I, yeah, I, okay <laughs> well, but that would be a cop out and too obvious for me because everybody knows that i'm a star wars geek so let's talk about star wars separately later but so in fifth place, oh, I keep changing it, but I'm going to go with the 1994 film Leon, the Luke oh, Besson great. film. Yes, yeah. How's that for starters? Brilliant. Never take it off until the last minute it reflects light. I can see you coming from a mile away. And always dress down. Never bite down the floor. Okay? Okay. Let's practice now. It's the best way to learn. Who should I hit? Whoever. I first watched this with my wife before we were married. So she was my girlfriend then. And we saw it at the cinema. And I was just completely blown away by it. All of the performances. I mean, the story is amazing for a start, but the performances um, were just fantastic. Obviously, Gary Oldman, Natalie Portman, Jean Reno, just incredible. And... I remember seeing that one thing that really there's loads of bits that stick in my mind, but there's there's just a scene where Natalie Portman is, I think she's sat on the stairs with her legs swinging over the edge of the apartment, and Leon has just killed a load of people, and she's just that innocence, but also that sort of cunning look in her eye about where her life is going to take her now. It's just it's so well done. I can't. It's one of those films you just can't fault. And it's a nice balance because. Given some of the subject matter, it could so easily go over into distasteful, but he always keeps it on that fine line. I think that goes to its brilliant. Plus, Gary Oldman is just barking mad. He is. Yeah, he is. I still think it is Natalie Portman's um, performance for me because you say, you know, she's playing, I think she's what, 12 or 13, isn't she, in the film? Yes. You know, a lot of it you feel very, very uncomfortable watching for obvious reasons, but it's just done so well. Then that relationship when Leon takes her under his wing effectively to protect her, you know, it's a relationship that he's never had before. Just incredible. And it's one of those films, I've, I've tried to pick films that I could just pick up and watch and would be you know, happy to watch it over and over again. And, and that's certainly one of them. And Eric Serra's music score is, is just sublime. He's as good in this on his music as he was as bad in Goldeneye. <laughs> well, you see, you're showing your expertise more than me now. But um, yeah, again, it's everything, isn't it? I, I remember talking to him. Um, I wish I could remember his name, but many years ago, I'd, I'd, I interviewed somebody who, who wrote music. And it's an oft used line, isn't it? And they said, you know, if you don't notice the music in a film, it's the, the film is the music's really good. If you do notice the music, the music's really bad. So um, it's that it's that compliment. <laughs> good point. But. 
Hey, great start. Where were you in number four then? Okay, um, number four. I'm going to I'm going to swap them around again. <laughs> okay, number four. I'm going to go to I Am Legend, the Will Smith apocalyptic film. I first saw. I don't think I saw it at the cinema. Actually, it's probably something that I saw. I'd, I'd read a review about and bought on um, Blu-ray or DVD, and it was about. I mean, it's sort of in many ways, it's quite um, quite topical, but it's a plague that kills most of the population and uh, and, and leaves those that are left zombies. And, and Will Smith is a is a sole survivor in New York, and he's got a dog with him, obviously, because um, most apocalyptic movies always have a, a cute animal that you root for. <laughs> and I've just got this thing about zombie movies and and apocalyptic movies. I'm, I'm really I'm a big fan of production design. And, and tend to watch a film quite differently than my wife because I'll be looking at the production design, the editing, the filming alongside the story as well. And I just think this in particular, this has got one of those great behind the scenes featurettes as well, where they show you how they sort of cleared a, a street in New York for eight hours and put in all the, all the overgrown plants and everything. And then they came in and filmed as people were watching from the sides. It was great. But also it just, it's got that amazing because a lot of the film is, it's a bit like a quiet place where which is, is another great film that nearly made it onto my list where you've got a lot of the, the, the movie is silent because you, there is nothing mm, to hear. You mm. just hear the birds and stuff. So it's a great film. And it also makes you jump out of your skin, which I think, you know, on a good night, there's nothing more than a, a bag of snacks, a good beer and, and a good jumpy movie. I think that's a perfect night in. Not that my wife and daughter would agree with me. <laughs> I was going to say my wife certainly wouldn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> You know, he's playing golf on that aircraft carrier. Yeah. Yeah, I've been on that. That's in the harbour in New York. It's um, a museum as well, a floating museum. And I was trying to explain to my wife about I Am Legend, and she didn't want to know. <laughs> but do, do you agree with me when, about the production design? I mean, you That's look at brilliant. it, and it's believable, yeah. isn't it? I mean, we're so used to realistic CGI now in production design, and... Um, one of the films that nearly made my list, you know, I'm sort of kicking myself a bit about now, was Alien, which I rewatched again about two or three years ago, and I'd not seen it since the 80s. And actually, if you watch, I don't know when the last time you watched it was, but if you watch it now, it looks really, really contemporary. The production design yes. on the, the the ships are just fantastic. And it's of its time, obviously. The attention to detail that goes into these things is just great. Yeah. I'm just about to rewatch it. I just got the the new Blu-ray high dynamic range version so i'm gonna rewatch it again oh nice so, uh, look and at I am it. legend what? based on a fantastic book uh, the the actual story is slightly different but equally uh, interesting uh, with a very very different end ah yeah no i'd read about yeah i'd heard about this so the ending in the book is different is that right mm, okay yes All right yeah the, the whole thing because in the book they're vampires yes ah okay and yeah and the funny thing with all of this is, is when George Romero made Night of the Living Dead, which really started where we are with zombie films today, his whole idea was based on I Am Legend. So it, it's strange how it's come back around to a version now with Will Smith that tries to be closer to the book. So ultimately, uh, Romero's zombie trilogy, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead, are a lot closer in tone to what uh, Richard Matheson was writing. And and the punchline of the book is brilliant, which mm. I won't spoil for you. Yeah. Right. I might, I, might, I might take that on holiday if we get yeah. on holiday this year. But actually, what did you think of Will Smith's performance in it? Because he's a bit Marmite for me as an actor. But I actually thought, watching him in this, I really thought he was fantastic. I thought he was he was really well cast. I thought he was good. Now, uh, um, have you seen the alternate ending? No. So on the oh, actually, G- how you say that? Probably, I probably have seen it actually because it'll be on the Blu-ray. Once yes, which I've got. yeah, it's, right. on, it's on there. Yeah, it takes it in a slightly different thing, and you also get a different view of what these creatures were like, or these you know once human uh, were like. But I thought he was really good. Um, I I understand what you mean. If you watch a film like After Earth with oh, uh, Will Smith, <laughs> and you think, yeah, okay, well, I think you need to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. Um, <laughs> thing with Will Smith is when he started off and it was the comic acting, the lightness of tone, and he seems to have gone away from that into more serious. And I think something slightly has been lost along the way. Don't know mm. what your thoughts are on that. 
Yeah, I know what you mean. I I didn't see uh, After Earth, which was probably by the sound of it as a good thing. Um, yes. Uh, <laughs> so, because I really enjoyed Independence Day um, yes. and I thought he was great in that. I, mean, I, I like those sort of swashbuckling sci-fi films that are just full of nonsense. Like, actually, I thought he was quite good in that. And obviously in Men in Black, he was brilliant with um, Tommy Lee Jones. So, yeah, but, but I know in his more recent stuff, I've not seen him as the best that he could be. I'm slightly skewed by it because my daughter started watching Fresh Prince of Bel-Air recently, which completely changed my view of, of Will Smith. I've never seen that before. So, um, but no, but I, I think in, in uh, I Am Legend, he's, he's fantastic and really well cast. Okay. So moving on to our next selection, number three. Number three. Okay. Well, this was quite an easy one. It's a film that we talked about me being a musician earlier and uh, I'm also I've also got dual nationality, so I've, I'm Irish as well as British. I'm born in England, but I've got an Irish family. And this film, um, if you haven't guessed by now, really sticks with me because it is fabulous, and it's the commitments. You're trying to tell me you play with BB King, among others, brother. Like, have we got all day? Screaming Jay Hawkins, Marta Reeves, Sam Cook, poor Sam, Aldous Redding, with the Lord of Mercy on his sweet soul. Joe Tex, The Four Tops, Stevie Wonder, he was only 11, a pup. Wilson Pickett. What are you doing in Dublin? I'm tired of the road. My mammy isn't very well. Why would you want to join us? The Lord sent me. The Lord blows my trumpet. Um, Again, which I can put on any time. Uh, I know the words in some of the places. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It just... It just is so well written as a book anyway. The book is fantastic. Alan Parker's interpretation of it is perfect, in my opinion. I mean, there are obviously some changes. The cast are great because there were a bunch of unknowns, and it is just perfect. The music, the language, I mean, it's um, it's not one for, the, for, for your granny, no. um, <laughs> but um, just absolutely brilliant. And one of those ones I can put – and when I was in the um, – I talked about the band that we I was in that I put together for my wedding. That was made up from people that I've been in bands with before. And, and one of our bands, uh, that used to be – we'd, we'd get round um, uh, Rob's house, who was the lead singer, and we'd watch the commitments with a takeaway. And, yeah, it's just great. I can – again, I wanted to choose films that I could watch any time, and this is one of them. I remember Alan Parker was saying about this once when he made fame, he didn't get on with anybody that he, that any of the actors, he was as pleased to see them go as they were to see him go at the end of it. But <laughs> the, and the commitments, it was the complete opposite. They, they all got on really, really well. Yeah. And you can really tell, and it's just, there's just that lovely, I mean, crap, we need it at the moment. Don't we, we need a film that you could watch where you get really engrossed in it, you laugh a lot and you come out with a smile on your face. So even though the band, you know, no spoilers, they, you know, they, they split up at the end of the film and it's easygoing and it's, no, it's just, it's, you know, like Sunshine on Leith, which is, um, mm. again, a fantastic film for very different reasons. I mean, that was just based on the, the, the music of the Proclaimers, which, but again, you just come out with a smile on your face and, um, hey, we need that. Oh, yes, yeah, definitely, definitely. But no, it, it, in in so many hands, as you, you said about you know them splitting up, that could have been seen as a down ending. But it's not. It's all about new beginnings. Um, absolutely fantastic. And I've been to a couple of Irish weddings, so I can really, really, um, you know, the, 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 there's just the scene, you know, with the the drunk granddad in the corner and the, the kid skidding on the, on his knees across the dance floor and, um, you know, someone grabbing the microphone, all that sort of stuff. It's just, it's just brilliant. But also the locations of this filmed on as well, where, you know, I think I might be right in saying that Alan Parker just used people off the street from, from mm. much of the background scenes. And it just, yeah. it just really works, doesn't it? It's just fantastic. Yeah. Have you ever seen Sing Street? Yes. Again, very good. Yeah. The, the way it captures the eighties and that music, but mm. yeah, great. But yeah, it's good, but it's not the commitments. So. <laughs> it's not the commitments. No. no, it takes a long it takes a, a long way to beat that. But again, it's you know it's about the the relationships, and if you you, know, you don't want to analyze a film like the commitments too much, but you look at that that friendship group where they all come along, and you know they're all different characters. You know the piano player that's from the church. You got the Andrew Strong who plays um, 
I can't, I was going to forget his character's name, but it'll come back to me soon. Uh, he plays the lead singer. And then Jimmy Rabbit, of course, who's just brilliant. Yes. Joey the Lips. It's Joey the Lips plays guitar, isn't it? You know, all those, all yes. those sort of people that come together and, and the relationships that they have that you think it wouldn't work. But as soon as they start playing the music, and I've been in bands like that. Uh, Deco, that's it. Deco is the uh, lead singer. Um, Deco Cuff, you know, yeah. all, all those people that come together, completely different. And then they, they pick up their instruments and they start playing. It, it is a bit that, that um, there is that sort of kids from fame thing, isn't it? When they go into the music shop and they just all pick up their instruments and all of a sudden they start to play. It's a little <laughs> bit like that in the commitments, but a, a bit more raw. Um, and it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. If, you, if, if people are listening to this and they haven't seen the commitments, watch it now. Yeah. 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 No, I totally agree. And that's, yeah, I actually showed it to my wife and she loved it, which her taste in films very different to mine. So, uh, yeah, I was surprised. One of the few that we both agree on. It's always good when you, when you like a film that your wife likes as well, doesn't it? Cause you yeah. can enjoy it together. Just, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So number two. <sighs> okay. Number two is way out West by Laurel and Hardy. Oh, so, oh wow! Okay, I don't know whether anybody's ever chosen that before on no, the podcast. No, no, so um, it was slightly before my time, <laughs> but um, my granddad uh, on my dad's side and my dad um, brought me up watching Laurel and Hardy. You know, in the seventies they used to play them on whether it was the BBC or ITV, I can't remember, but they, they were regularly on the TV. So I was just brought up watching Laurel and Hardy. I remember just laughing on the sofa mainly during the summer holidays they'd be on on a on an afternoon perhaps but yeah they've just been part of my culture really growing up and way out west which funnily enough as a result of this podcast i started to show my daughter who's 14 a couple of weeks ago and she stuck with it for 25 minutes which i think as a 14 year old was pretty good it's the perfect laurel and hardy film because it has got everything in it obviously there's the famous dance Mm. there's the song there's the slapstick um, there's Jimmy Finlayson just doing his thing as ever. And Sharon Lynn, who is just brilliant as Lola Marcel. Just a great film. Again, if people haven't seen it as well, all the little gags that are in it, um, you know, putting the, the, the rough steak into your, into his shoe to fill a hole that's, that's yes. then chased after by the dogs. And, you know, you're laughing even now, aren't you? When you, yeah. when you can't see it. Yeah. And, uh, it's just all, it's, it's beautifully done. It's really well observed. It's again, it's a great story. You know, it's a story of, of good over evil in many ways. And it was a close run call actually between this and Sons of the Desert. But I think Way Out West just tips it for me as a great film. And, you know, I've watched the colorized version because I've got the box set. It's no good. You've got to watch the Laurel and Hardy yeah, yeah, films in black yeah, and white. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And and again, if you'd seen, which I'm sure you've seen Stan and Ollie, the um, Steve Coogan film. Yes. Oh, fantastic. You know, when they're doing that, the, the dancing scene before they go into the bar and you can just see all those bits from the cable with the guitar walking by in the studio and you see him getting his shoe ready and checking the holes there. And or, you know, if you know the films, just those little observations in Stan and Ollie just were just brilliant for me. I was getting quite overexcited watching it, but um, yeah, no. So there you go. Massive Laurel and Hardy fans. So it had to be that one. Right. So the natural question here is when you showed this to your daughter, was it the black and white or colorized version? Black and white. Ah, yeah absolutely and interestingly she said she said she said um she said something which i've not really thought about but she said well of course you know when these films were being made she said if ever i watch a black and white film or a black and white tv program i forget that for them it was like us they were seeing in color and everything was colorful so Mm. and it's like you know i said well remember when we saw the stan and ollie film and they were that's that's what they saw and it's strange to see it in black and white but there is something about it and i don't i'm sure there is a a psychology to this, but there is something about watching Laurel and Hardy in black and white that is funnier than seeing it in color. For some reason, it's just not as funny. Maybe that's because it's ingrained in is me in my psyche mm. as a kid. It's just not as good. And um, so I don't know, but yeah, it's uh, you've got it. It's got to be black and white all the way. If your daughter got through 25 minutes, is it worth trying her on the music box, which is just about 25 minutes long? Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, I am going to try and tempt her on some more. We've been really lucky actually, because um, talking pictures, TV, they, they uh, broadcast. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a great resource, isn't it? Yes. And they broadcast all the Laurel and Hardy films 
over the last few years. So I've recorded them on our box so I don't have to dig the DVDs out like a heathen. Um, <laughs> like, you know, it's that old fashioned thing of yes. putting a disc in a, in a machine. Um, so, you know, they're, they're there to go to. And um, yeah, the music box, again, another, another, another great film, um, which you can just laugh at by thinking about it. And, you know, yes. I'll, I'll often talk to my dad and, we, we'll talk about Laurel and Hardy. We'll start talking about little scenes. We'll just start crying with laughter because we're just remembering things that happen. So, yeah, it's uh, they are classics. I think, again, you know, my wife, for example, doesn't find them funny. I've got other friends that don't find Laurel and Hardy funny, but you either do or you don't. I don't think there's a middle way. Yeah, but the music box is so simple an idea. All you've yeah. got to do is get this box with a piano in up these steps. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yes. And it's just perfect. Just... And isn't the genius of it, genius of it at the end when the, I think it's the policeman, isn't it, who says, "Well, why don't you just bring it up the road?" So they then yeah. take they then take yeah. the piano all the way back down the steps just to bring it up the road. Yeah, where I mean, were what... you twenty five minutes ago when we needed you? <laughs> it's just those that you know, just great writing, great writing, and um, yeah, oh, oh, fantastic. So um, yeah, I could I could have put a few more Laurel and Hardys in the top five, but then that would have skewed it in the way that Star Wars would have. The Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia On the trail of the lonesome pine In the pale moonshine Our hearts entwine Where she carved her name And I carved mine Or June, or June Just like, like the mountains are blue Like the pine I am lonesome for you I've just written down way out west. Must watch it again. Do yeah, absolutely again. I mean, I hope that that um, by doing that. I mean, I'm certainly going to watch Leon the Commitments and I Am Legend again because um, I saw Way Out West recently, and um, it just reminds you. And I, you know, I was going through. Um, I, I'm sure you use. I use. I am the Internet Movie Database, and mm. um, yeah. I do keep my. And I was going through the watch list just to try and pick the top five. And you go, oh yeah, I must watch that again, or I must watch this again. And yeah. you know, there is. You know, we've we've been watching a lot of films during lockdown. Um, um, trying to find. You know, we've tried to sit down on a Saturday night all together as a family and just watch a film. And you've got to pick the right one, obviously. Um, um, it's it's been great to rediscover some films. I'm quite happy to watch a film for the second time or third time if I know other people are going to enjoy it because of that mm. communal experience. But um, as long as people don't talk through it, I don't mind. <laughs> You're a man after her own heart. Yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> the other <laughs> thing, of course, about watching the old black and white films isn't is they're so quick because they've only got like an hour to tell a whole story in the pacing is off the chart and it just they just rock it along and i i just miss that sometimes i'm watching you know, a three-hour film and i'm thinking oh, this is not how laurel and hardy would have done it <laughs> buster <laughs> keaton would have had that whole thing done in five minutes you know? I, I, I do you know what? I, th- I actually think you make a really good point because my daughter's generation my daughter's getting a lot of mentions on these podcasts. She won't even yeah. listen to it, but I'll tell you. <laughs> um, but their generation, I've noticed, is their attention span is really short. So, you know, when we go to watch a film on a Saturday, there's a regular bit of a heated discussion about, I can't be bothered to watch a film. It's too long. So we made a joke about calling them extended programs. And she says, well, if you watch this, how long is it? You say, well, it's two hours, 10 minutes. Two hours, 10 minutes. Um, now, for me, that's that's fine because you've got to get involved in it. And, and more often than not, at the end of it, she goes, no, actually, that was really good. It was just the thought of having to sit through it for so long just to get that short, you know, you know all the streaming services now where you can you can skip the credits and all that, mm. you know. Let's just sit down and watch it normally. But then you've got, you know, these these longer films like, I mean, Avengers Endgame was three and a half hours. You've got Justice yeah. League, four hours. I mean, that takes some doing. I know, I know what you mean. I, th- I think around two hours, 2.15 is a good is a good length for a film. Yeah. In my opinion, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. It's, as you say, as well as the characters drag you in. Mm. I mean, I was rewatching The Godfather the other night, and there was a lot of complaints when it first came out about the wedding sequence and it goes on, but it it sort of takes you into the film, so you get a feeling of who these people are before the real story begins. Yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely, absolutely, um, and it's it's got to be to a point where. I get frustrated with some films where it's just full of exposition and you just want to get to the action. A scene like that in The Godfather is great because it's so well written and it's it's well shot and it's great acting and and that's absolutely fine. But it doesn't do for everybody. Some people just want bang, 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 don't they? So I yeah. get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah. So we've reached the top. 
Number one. Oh, chaps, this was so difficult. <laughs> um, <laughs> so sticking to my decision not for it not to be a Star Wars film, because um, <laughs> if you've just tuned in, because otherwise they would have all been Star Wars films. Um, I am going to go for, and again, it's a, I think it's a really obvious one, I think, because so many people like this film, but it is just brilliant. Um, and it's an obvious one, but it is the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, is that yes. all right? Yeah. Oh, sorry about that. No, no, um, no, no, no. <laughs> Again, it's, and this is one that we haven't watched with our daughter yet. And I'm, I, I've promised that before, if the government's roadmap allows us to come out on the 21st of June and things get back to normal, I've said this is the last film that we'll watch on our Saturday night film night before we can get back to normal. So, you know, we were talking about, weren't we, the, the way that films have real light and shade and you're, sometimes rooting for the bad guy because you understand it uh you understand where they're coming from but then you leave with the cinema with a great sense of uh, a real feel good uh uplifted sense of that was a really that was a really great way to spend a couple of hours um because there's real jeopardy in the film there's obviously great performances from tim robbins and morgan freeman it is a fantastic story the screenplay is brilliant it's it's just got everything for me, and you that bit where at the end where Red's coming on the beach, and yeah, he's just yeah. got that smile on his face because he knows that everything's just turned out so well for Andy, uh, and he pulled it off with the escape. And uh, no, it's just just brilliant. Um, I can't fault you can't fault this film. I don't think. No, no, no. Uh, although when we were on Nikki Price's show, we did have a bit of a discussion, stroke <laughs> argument about the ending. So the original ending was it, it ends with with Red on the bus, and you yeah. don't know if everybody gets to meet him. And the studio took one look at it and said, "No, it, it's you need a resolution. They need to meet up at the end." And I thought that was right. Graham, on the other hand, took no. a different approach. No, I think it's a the whole film is about hope, and it's got to leave you with you just hoping he'll meet. And that's the whole point. The whole thing for me, if you could have ended it when the director wanted to end it, not the suits, that would have been the perfect ending for me. But uh, nope. I get, I get uh, shouted down all the time. And yeah, it's still, you, it's basically, still a you're wrong. fantastic film. It's but a had fantastic you, Had you read film. the book beforehand? Um, this book, yes. Yeah. And ah, I've read okay, the book so you, since yeah. as well. Yeah. And, um, but Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's just a great, great. But sometimes, great film. you know, we we need that hope fulfilled. We need mm, to yeah. be told that yes. it's going to be okay. And I I, yeah. I know exactly where you come from. Particularly if you're if you if you've read a book and you you know you're a big fan of it and you go and see it at the cinema and you go, oh, that wasn't quite as good. I, mean, I, remember, <laughs> I remember being a big fan of um, the book The Beach, and then I went to see the Leo DiCaprio version oh, of it yeah. and Alex Garland, and it wasn't as good. And I was, you know, you kept, when are they going to do this scene? When are they going to do that? And you get disappointed. Yeah. Um, so I, I hadn't read the book before I'd seen The Shawshank Redemption. Um, so I came out going, it's, I'm satisfied from start to finish. I knew he found him. He was on the beach and the boat, you know, he was great. So, but I, I do understand. I'm being very BBC here on us sitting on the fence. Yeah. Uh, I do understand if you've read the book, there, when you know how good that ending is in the book, that you're going to be disappointed. But um, I do err on the fact that I think the ending is the correct one. The other thing about the film is it's just not only are the two central performances brilliant, but everybody is on their A game. I mean, the um, the the warden um, played by... Uh, Bob, is it Bob or Rob Gunton? Is he? He is just such a greedy, horrible, awful person. And then they have the um, the guard or the chief of the guards. Uh, he's just great as well, you know. So yeah. that, the the two central characters just have this wonderful background to play against, and it just the whole thing just works perfectly. And it's. You know, I could watch that till the cows come home. I never get tired of watching that film. It's just and the, you know, uh, the scene at the end when he gets out of the uh, out of the sewer and he stands up in the rain with his arms above his head. You know, and everybody goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the one you want to watch in America, isn't it? That sort yes, of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's just it's just got those those lovely moments where you are rooting for him. So. Uh, throughout every step of the film and obviously you know there there are times when he doesn't succeed and you go god how yeah. can you get out of this how is he going to co- turn this around and it's that moment when the uh, bob gunson character the warden throws yeah. the stone at the poster <laughs> and it yes. goes through the poster <laughs> and you go yes and then he lifts <laughs> the poster up and looks through the escape tunnel 
in the wall and you just go that is amazing because you don't see it coming you know you're pretty sure that he's done it i can't remember the chronology but i think they know that he's not in that you they know he's not in the cell at that point but you still don't yeah. know where he is yeah and then all of a sudden they the, the stone goes through and the, 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 they lift the poster up and it's just he's done it and what as, as a as a member of the audience as a viewer it's it's almost a bit tingly. You go, this is brilliant. It's just it's what yeah. you because sometimes you watch films, don't you? And things don't quite go the way that you want. But I think in the Shawshank Redemption, it just goes. Yeah, actually, no. He's he's done it. He's won, and we're satisfied with that. But everything about it. I mean, you have got the first twenty minutes, which are really dark and really mm. nasty. Then you've got that scene on the roof where they tar in the roof, and things start to turn around at that point. And and you know, and it just as you say, it just pulls you in with it i mean there's a wonderful story i don't know if you you heard this one steve about uh stephen king recently see now lives in florida and he was out shopping and he's in the supermarket and this woman comes to him you're stephen king you're the man that writes all those horror books he said yes i don't like them why can't you write something wholesome like the shawshank redemption <laughs> and he said and he said but i wrote that he said no he didn't you're a liar <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. yeah vindicated yeah. <laughs> yeah. but it, it's yeah and it, what depresses me is the director of that film frank darabont who did that then he made the green mile then he made the mist and also he was the initial showrunner on the walking dead but he hasn't made anything for years and you think yeah. you've got that talent why aren't you out there making films mm. That's a good. Yeah. That's a good point. Actually, yeah, he's not made anything. But maybe you know, if you make something as good as the uh, Shawshank Redemption, your work here is done. I don't know. Oh yes, you know, yeah. You know, drop yeah. the mic and walk that's off. Right. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So, so, so that was number one. But we can't leave without saying something about Star Wars. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, play into the crowd, Jeff. How long have we got, Jeff? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, well, it's been an interesting journey, actually, because being a child of the 70s, I saw Star Wars at the ABC in Gloucester, in King Square. And I think I probably would have been six, because we would have seen, I think it came out in December 77 in the UK. So um, I would have been six at the time. And my memories of coming out and seeing a cardboard cutout of R2-D2 and and C-3PO on the poster and just being completely blown away by it. And then, you know, it defined my generation. We'd play Star Wars in the playground with all our mates. Then Empire came out and then Jedi and and then the special editions where let's not talk about those. And then the prequels, (laughs) let's not talk about those either. For me, it was... Yeah, it really defined my generation. And again, it's that when you look back on it and the more I've learned about the films as I've got older, as I've started to collect books and and read upon about it, was the whole thing that that Lucas knew exactly what he was doing, but none of the cast and crew did. And, you know, it nearly bankrupt him. And But he had this amazing vision. But it was all the, the, the cast and the crew that all led up to that, that interpreted what George Lucas wanted and that sort of that used universe to create this amazing storyline that blew people away it's never been bettered in my opinion is a is a the, those first two films in particular i think mm. empire slightly edges it over yep. a new hope yes. in my mind to be a, a man in his 40s when i, I remember being what well, would, would have been an infant school and one of my mates had read in a comic that george lucas was planning nine films in foot and you thought oh, that never happened <laughs> and uh, i had to wait till my 40s for the force awakens but um that was that was pretty special you can bang on about the the sequels a lot i mean they were they weren't perfect by a long shot although I, i'm one of the people that quite liked the rise the uh, rise of skywalker i thought it did end it quite well mm-hmm. um but uh, no, it, it, it you know it's part of the part of my culture, part of my upbringing now, and and what John Favreau has done with the Mandalorian um, oh, has been. I mean, that was you know if I thought JJ did a great job with the Force Awakens, but maybe if they'd just given it to John, it would have been even better, and not so um, not so following the storyline of A New Hope. But no, it's just great. So for me as a Star Wars fan, yeah, I mean we're living in great times, aren't we? 
but what I think is interesting is the discussion we've had on the show is that like it or hate it, the prequel three were the work of one man. You know, it was the vision that George Lucas had. The latest three, they're visions of three different people. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas with the Mandalorian, John Favu has gone back and he's just, to me, he's recreated something out of the original Star Wars. And, and this is the, the point I always mentioned to Graham is at the end of the show, when the credits come up, they have like paintings or pictures of some, you know, scenes from the film and, and that or from the show, sorry. And that is very much like in the seventies, they used to have a lot mm. of TV Westerns on and they always used to end with a similar sort of thing. You know, there'd be like somebody had sketched out things from the show and the credits would be r- rolling over it. So this whole Western mythology, which Star Wars took over in the seventies, it's just recreated in the Mandalorian and it just makes it even more special. I, I, I agree. And I, th- I mean, I think, so I've got a very good friend of mine, uh, David Bailey, who I used to work with. He, he left the BBC last year, but we used to sit opposite each other at work. Uh, he, and he was born on exactly the same day as me in 1971. And bizarrely, when we're both massive Star Wars fans, and we've talked about the Mandalorian a lot. And I think we all, we both agree that it, it's it's actually perfect. I think there's not much you can criticise in it because it gives you that great hit of nostalgia that as fans that you want. You want to see stuff that you recognise. You know, to go back in the cantina and be back in Mos Eisley is is brilliant and see some of the old characters. But it also takes it on and it stays within that universe that you were brought up with as well. I mean, the prequels look nothing like Star Wars to me. Goodness yeah. knows what George Lucas was doing, but but the sequels did. But then, there, but there was still that that bit of polish to it. Whereas I think the Mandalorian still has that that rough nineteen seventies edge. One of the big things for me and David just reminded. I don't know why I forgot to talk about this, but when they were filming the Force Awakens back however long ago it was now, uh, I was in the office and somebody rang up from the Forest of Dean and said, "Oh, did you know they're filming the new Star Wars film in Puzzlewood?" I went, no, they can't be. I would have heard about that. I'm the Gloucestershire reporter. I'm a big Star Wars fan. We would have. Anyway, so me and my cameraman legged it down there, and Puzzlewood was just covered in caravans and Winnebago's. And the, when you watch the film, you, you know, the, the two and a half minute scene that was shot in Puzzlewood, you could not believe the amount of stuff they had there. But. <laughs> um, so we went down and did a piece sort of sneaking around the outside and, you know, they wouldn't confirm it was Star Wars, even though we knew it was. So we had, we had some fun with that. And then this, and this is a really nice story that as a, after we did that piece, I've got a, a friend um, in Cheltenham where I live called John Shirley. And John is a, a lovely guy. He used to be the drama and English teacher at uh, a local school in Gloucester. And we were around having dinner at his house. John is very into theatre and his two passions are theatre and Wolverhampton Wanderers. I'm not quite sure how they, they come together. But um, we were around having dinner at John's house and we were talking. It was the year of the Oscars when um, Ellen DeGeneres had taken that really famous selfie. Yes. And oh, yeah. Um, yeah. she said, he said, to, we were talking about the Oscars and he went, oh, yeah, well, uh, our neighbour Norman's got a couple of Oscars. And I was just oh yeah. But, oh, that's great. Oh, what's, he, what's, what's he got them for, John? He said, oh, I can't remember any said to his wife, Liz, he says, Liz, what are the, um, what films did Norman get his Oscars for? And just without a hint, she just lifted her head up from eating and she said, oh, um, Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark, darling. I went, what? (laughs) What? So quickly Googled him. So Norman Reynolds, who was the production designer on, uh, well, he was art director on Star Wars and production designer on Empire and Jedi and Indiana Jones and a wealth of other films, lives up the road from me in Cheltenham. So um, I couldn't resist it. I rang him up a couple of weeks later and I said, you haven't done many interviews, so obviously this is not really your thing, but would you meet me and David and discuss perhaps doing a a piece with us for when The Force Awakens comes out? And uh, we met up and had a drink with him. And I knew he, as soon as I knew who he was, you know, I'd recognised him from the books that I read. And, you know, this is the guy that, that he designed the ball chasing after Harrison Ford in Indiana Jones. That was his set, you know, all the, all the stuff that he interpreted from Ralph McQuarrie's drawings in, in Empire and Jedi. And, you know, he designed a lot of C-3PO in, in the, you know, it, it could go on. Anyway, he agreed to it. And we ended up taking Norman back to Elstree Studios, to the very studio where a lot of the scenes in Star Wars were shot. And we met up um, with Robert Watts, who was the producer on the film 
because they were great mates and the, sto- the stories they had off camera were that weren't very broadcastable were, were actually better than the ones we could use in the filming then. Um, isn't that always the way it's always the way and it was just to be in that, you know, we were in this, we were in the room where um, Obi-Wan's house is filmed and the interiors of the Millennium Falcon cockpit and the X-Wing cockpits and all that in the same studio, sorry, not the room, just talking to them about these films. Uh, and that, that film is still on um, my YouTube channel. So search out Norman Reynolds, BBC. And as a result of that, we then got to interview Kathy Kennedy, the president of Lucasfilm. Oh, wow. Because, and it was Norman who put me in, t- he said, oh, he said, oh, Kathy will talk about what we've done. And he put me in touch. And so we went to interview Kathy and we got to interview, talk to her about Puzzlewood as well. So we did a piece on in, about, you know, when they released, it was Puzzlewood. Um, so we did an interview with her. So we, this was all before The Force Awakens was released. So for me as a Star Wars fan, I mean, I was in, we were in our element and, um, and <laughs> it was just, just fantastic. It made watching the film slightly odd when we came to see it because we'd sort of had a taste of of dealing with Lucasfilm and you got really close to it, but uh, not in a bad way. You just felt not part of the film, but you just, you had this great insight into how it was made. And, um, you know, when Kathy came in and said, oh, have you, you know, you're looking forward to the film. She said, I've seen it. It's great. You know, JJ's done a great job. And we're going, you know, you're the producer of this new Star Wars film, you know, and we're talking to you. So that was a really great experience and, and one that uh, me and, and Dave will cherish for a long time. We, in our, one of our early interviews, we interviewed a chap called Midge Ferguson. Now, Midge is a, um, a location manager, and he has recently found a lot of fame because he's the guy that does all the locations for sex education on Netflix. When we met him, he was on set on Shakespeare and Hathaway for the BBC. We, it was a t- uh, afternoon TV show. Afternoon TV. You're out yeah. working then, Steve, so you wouldn't know. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. and, and, um, but he, he's done a lot of things like Atlantis, Merlin, and all of this. Well, apparently, the... They did a lot of Mer- a lot of Merlin was filmed over in Puzzlewood, mm. and after a couple of seasons, everything got a bit laissez-faire, and they didn't have contracts. They would just turn up, and they planned to go down and film in Puzzlewood some episodes for for uh, I think it was must have been the last series of Merlin, but as they were preparing for this, they did, had no contract. Star Wars was due to come in after them, but of course Harrison Ford broke his ankle. And they brought forward all the filming in Puzzlewood. So, so they said, right, okay, we'll be down next week. Uh, no, you won't. You've never signed a contract with us on this. Star Wars have now <laughs> come in. And, oh, and by the way, they're giving us more money. <laughs> <laughs> so Merlin will wait. Yes. Merlin yeah. will wait. Oh, yeah. God. So, so I, I, I said to Midge, did that put you out? He said, no, I have another location anyway. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing, and it? it just goes to it, the the interesting thing for us was we we knew when we went down we knew it was Star Wars, and you know Helen who runs Puzzle Words who I, we knew quite well she could, just couldn't tell me I said come on you got to tell you these Star Wars it's just I can't say, um, and on the back on a lot of the buses they had um, a, a post that said Avco. And I spoke to Lisa Mazimba, who's the BBC's entertainment correspondent. He goes, oh, yeah, that's, he said, that's the um, code word for the filming, because Avco was the cinema that Star Wars was first shown in in L.A., apparently, in the 70s. So we, we knew it was Star Wars. And, um, yeah, we had, a quite, we had quite a bit of fun that day. But, I mean, the amount of stuff they had there, just, just incredible. And, you know, we were the only shots we managed to get of anything that we, we saw some people fighting with. Um, wooden sticks like lightsabers so we sort of made a, a joke of that we saw into some of the the, the, the dressing rooms where it looked like um interestingly when you watch the the, the scene back the, we saw these wigs that looked that weren't in them at all there was sort of these long wigs like liam neeson wore in one of the prequels N- none of that was used but the people in the winnebago's and the stuff there for the you know it's incredible but you know, as a fan to then go back, and it's been great for Puzzlewood, as it says Merlin and Doctor Who. You know, people can go back here with the fans, can't they? And they can walk around the sets. You know, it's amazing. Well, I think we just got to celebrate the fact that people want to come here and and um, and make their films with us in, in this area because it's it's great for tourism, it's great for the county, and it's you know it's great for us as film fans as well. Well, thank you very much, Dave. That's been an excellent conversation, and for anybody listening, if you haven't seen any of those five films, or even if you have. They're well worth checking out again. So it's been an absolute pleasure, Steve. Thank you very much. And You're more and, than welcome. No, it's been a pleasure for me. Thanks for asking. Uh, oh, thank you. And when we do meet in person, hopefully after all restrictions are lifted, 
that'll be one point I owe you. Just the one? What's going on? That was oh, in the contract. Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, tough times. Yeah. We're retired. Yeah. We're yeah. all <laughs> It's coming oh, out of my pension, this. <laughs> okay, Graham. Maybe a half then. I'll stretch to a half. Oh, the old uh, no- negotiation skills haven't lo- left me then. That's good. <laughs> I'm really grateful just to have a chance to talk because I do I do watch a lot of films and it's it's not often you get a chance to discuss it with like-minded people, particularly after the year we've had. So it's been great. And um, I'm certainly going to go and watch all the ones that I've not seen recently again. And um, uh, and I'm particularly looking forward to the Shawshank Redemption. And if I could convince my daughter to watch Alien with me at some point, then that'll be a good thing as well. Oh, so I'll, I'll leave you with this last question then. Cinemas will hopefully be opening again very shortly. By the time this goes out, they may well have opened. What film are you most looking forward to seeing in cinemas? That's a good question because there's quite a few that I want to watch. Um, Black Widow. Oh, right. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big Marvel fan and we've been waiting for that for a long time. Um, and, of course, the new Bond film, which looks oh, yeah. fantastic. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, after a, a year of not being able to go to the cinema, I'm a sucker for a blockbuster. So, you know, just <laughs> they can just throw it all at me. But, yeah, Black Widow and, and um, No Time to Die are the two that I've been particularly looking forward to. I mean, the last time I went to the cinema was to see Tenet. Yeah. So, and I'm still confused. So I need to go <laughs> yeah. and see something that I'm going to actually understand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm totally confused <laughs> by the whole thing of Tenet. And we've had many arguments on the show over it. I loved yeah. it. Absolutely yeah. loved it. Graham says he understood stood it all, but when I asked him to write it down, no, he couldn't do that. <laughs> so untrue. So untrue. I, I have fought it to watch again because it, it, I think it deserves a second, third, fourth viewing, yeah. a bit like Inception uh, and Interstellar. That I, I've got much more out of watching it the second and third time because uh, I'm a big, again, a big fan of of, uh, of Christopher Nolan. But um, yeah, I, you know, I think we were overexcited and giddy that we could go to the cinema again. A group of us went and we came out and we went and we were, we were sort of talking each other's theories and then we were t- convincing each other that our theories were wrong. So yeah, but it was, it's still a, an incredible bit of filmmaking, but I'm still not sure I understand it. Well, as I say, it's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to talking to you again about films. Maybe we can do a wrap up of the year around Christmas time if you're available, Steve. Anytime. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank Thank you you very much. Cheers. Cheers.